I'm Kelly Young, and my co-host Stevie Kirsch is here with me, but we're actually trying something new for this episode, and we couldn't be more excited. We're partnering with Indy Maven, and co-hosting with us today is Amanda Kingsbury. Amanda, why don't you introduce us and tell us a little about yourself? Uh, hi, yes. Thanks for uh, having me as your co-host today. Um, so I'm a recovering journalist who used to work for the Indy Star, and I just accepted a position with the Arts Council a few months ago, which is a very exciting time to be there since there's a lot going on. And uh, Indy Maven was something we co-founded last fall with Leslie Bailey and Crystal Graves, and what we're doing is trying to connect women through great storytelling and uplifting their voices and events when we can have them in real life again. So this is going to be great. So I'm a little, I'm not going to lie, a little intimidated with the, uh, you know, Indie Star past reporter and Indie Maven chick, but I'm going to get through it. So um, welcome, Amanda. Glad to have you here. Uh, you and I are going to co-host today's Badassery Life podcast. This is a podcast where we have the privilege to sit down and talk with women we think are living badassery lives. These are ordinary women doing extraordinary things, women who are social activists, moms, entrepreneurs, athletes, survivors, mentors, and more. All right, so let's get started. This badass woman has been on the front lines of the opioid epidemic since 2014. In her first years of starting a nonprofit, she developed the only youth awareness prevention program to address the dangers of opioids now used in more than 21 states. She worked with lawmakers allowing for over-the-counter naloxone access, became the first organization in the U.S. to be trained to deliver an evidence-based, personality-targeted approach to adolescent substance use prevention, and developed effective evidence-informed training courses. But all of this came at a deadly and devastating cost, the death of her son who died from an overdose of heroin when he was just 20. Meet Justin Phillips, the founder and executive director of Overdose Lifeline, an Indianapolis-based nonprofit she founded in 2014 to help prevent opioid deaths and reduce the stigma of addiction. Uh, Justin, I just wanted to note real quick that it was Betty Cockrum who uh, wanted me to reach out to you about a year ago to learn more about your story, and uh, the loss of her was devastating. I can't help but think she'd be out um, protesting with the Black Lives Matter movement right now if she had the chance. Right, no kidding, and I'm uh, grateful to have known her for the short amount of time I knew her through another mutual uh, Betty and uh, grateful for the opportunity for her, of her to have connected us. But it was a big, devastating loss when that news came through. Yes, thank you. But it was only natural for Justin to transfer her skills and talents to the prevention of the continued stigma surrounding the chronic disease of substance abuse disorder following the death of her son and countless other lives to heroin, opioids and other drugs. She is the mom to Audrey and Brian and her son, Aaron, who overdosed on heroin on October 9th, 2013. He was 20 years old. Justin herself has been in recovery since 1989. She has dedicated her life to the memory of Aaron and is working to make a difference so that nobody has to experience what she did. Justin, thank you so much for being here and for joining us and for your willingness to share your story. Um, I have been doing a little bit of research and, and watched the videos and and read uh, multiple articles about it, and it's just amazing, and you're such a great inspiration. I'm, I'm sure seven years seems like forever ago, and at the same time, it feels like just yesterday. So let's talk about before that horrific day that Aaron died. Let's talk about a little bit about you and your story because you shared with us that you were also in recovery. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's actually today. Oh. 31 years. Wow. Today. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah no, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, and alcohol was my primary drug of choice. Uh, I got sober when I was 25, so I guess we can all do the math. Um, <laughs> Some of us, but I'm, I'm like 25, 26, 27, Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I was pretty young, but, you know, um, it's it's a simple thing. You know, when, when I um, had a little alcohol, I didn't have the ability to stop. Um, you know, we say in 12-step recovery, powerlessness, and one was never enough, and one was too many. And I recognize that, you know, like I said, when I was 25 and have been in recovery since. Well, congratulations um, to you. And and I know that's a a, a hard and long journey and a forever journey for you as well, too. So talk a little bit about life before 2013 for you and the Phillips family. Sure. So we have three children, um, Brian, Aaron, and Audrey. So Aaron was the middle child. Aaron uh, had the personality of the middle child, I think. And, you know, the thing probably that I missed the most about Aaron was his empathic nature, his ability to love every single human being. Uh, He definitely would have been out on the streets um, helping with this protest right now. He um, was a friend among all friends and always was taking care of others around him. I found out that he... Um, had started to experiment with marijuana at a pretty young age. I believe he was around 12, which was devastating to me. And I fought with him tooth and nail about that, right? Because of his own family history with substance use disorder and the genetic component to alcoholism and other substance use. And so we fought a lot about that. Um, I didn't understand opioids. I didn't understand prescription pain medication. And I know, um, Probably two or three years before Aaron acknowledged to me, I did discover some um, one else's prescription on his person in his room or something. And I had the conversation with him about, this is not safe. We can't take other people's prescription. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. We don't know how it will react in our body. But I still didn't understand. And so it, in uh, 2012, I had some suspicions that things weren't as they should be. I had some conversations with his father and um, a therapist he was seeing at the time. He uh, kept me at arm's length, I think, because he and I were very close. He, um, I like to say, is the only person who really knew me, oh, honestly. Okay. He, he and I were very close, and he would call me on my stuff, and he could see, you know. And so he kept me at arm's length, I think, because he didn't want me to really know what was happening for him. And But I had some suspicions that some things had changed for him. And then in October, he acknowledged, in fact, that he had been using heroin since about March of that year and couldn't stop on his own, knew that recovery was possible because all of my children were born after I got sober, so none of them had seen me doing any drugs or alcohol or anything, but they knew, Mm -hmm. you know, he knew recovery was possible. He said to me, you and dad have shown me that recovery is possible and I can't do this on my own. I need help. I still didn't understand opioids, you know, and I don't think in 2012 we did understand opioids the way that we do now. So he went to treatment. We um, followed the recommendations of treatment He went to some sober living, but unfortunately, I just, you know, hindsight's 20-20, so there's plenty of things I would have done then that I know now, and and that's what I try to help others with. And so then in the following October is when he overdosed. Okay. 
And and I think I read in an article where you talked about, or maybe he had said that he would get help, but he wanted to get high one more time. Yep. And how was, how did that, how was that? Yeah, it was difficult, right? I mean, I can still remember being in the driveway where we were at the time that all of this information became revealed. And I called his dad. We weren't married at the time, but um, very much uh, co-parenting together. And I called his dad and he came down and we had this conversation in the driveway with Aaron. And he said, I want to go get high one more time. And I think that's a common thing for people when they're recognizing they're going to let this thing go, but they believe that they need this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I didn't have any really choice but to agree to it because I didn't want to, I was afraid, and he may have even communicated that if I didn't let him, he would still go do it anyway, right? So so I remember he, he, he went with his dad um, home, and he went and did whatever he did and came back and yeah, I probably wouldn't change that at all, right? There would be change, things I would have changed after he went to treatment if I'd known then what I know now. Because that was in 2012, 12, right? Mm-hmm. So then he had a, a full year after that mm-hmm. before he had, yeah, okay. And you had shared that he was a boy obsessed with all things sports. He went from being a boy obsessed with all things sports to a young man focused on his next fix. And reading about him, he sounds amazing just in his commitment to the sports his family life and and um i know you miss him but talk talk just a little bit about aaron and and kind of bring him to life to to us and for our listeners so aaron you know literally was like sports and shoes at two years of age he wanted to be a ball for halloween (laughs) a ball yep that was his thing all sports and he always wanted to play football and I always was trying to steer him to other sports because football you know comes with injury concussion primarily um but it just never worked out he ended up playing football anyway and um but he he, like I mentioned before he was so empathic he really was he really cared he had that heart on the football field, on the sidelines, he would be the one encouraging his other players, you know, about whatever had happened in the previous play. He was an extremely talented athlete. He could play any sport that he picked up. And his other thing was his entrepreneurial spirit and his love for shoes. So at the age of four, he wanted shoes for his birthday. I mean, (laughs) wow, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) And in middle school, he started this shoe sale thing where he would order knockoff shoes and he had this binder with photographs of shoes that you could order from him and Uh then he would get them for you and that was his little business oh wow Wow, yeah that's great yeah yeah that's great well i appreciate you kind of telling us a little bit um and introducing him to us as well too so yeah all right. Well, something you, you just said, um, you said he, you wouldn't have changed anything about his last high, but you would have changed the treatment knowing what you know now. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. What would you have changed? Yeah. So, you know, I think we didn't know in 2012, really, treatment centers weren't prepared for opioids. There were a few other young men at the treatment center he attended that were also using opioids, but they weren't having conversation with us about the dangers of opioids, the real potential for relapse to occur, and overdose and death, right? Um, I don't think treatment centers 
like to acknowledge that relapse, which we like to really call a setback, is part of a chronic disease cycle, and right. people will have setbacks. So to expect a setback should be the case, and how to address a setback when that happens is not a conversation they had with us, right? They also didn't have a conversation with us about naloxone, the overdose reversal drug. So even though we knew little about it in 2012, we should have known. Yeah, what do you want people to know about that? Naloxone. Yeah, so naloxone is a drug. Its primary purpose is to prevent overdosing of an opioid. So any anything that's an opioid would be a prescription pain medication, heroin, fentanyl, the things you purchase on the street. And its purpose is to counteract too much of that drug. So in hospital settings, they use naloxone if a patient potentially has too much morphine in their system and can't rally around for physical therapy. They will give them some naloxone to counteract that. So it's it's a harmless drug. Its only purpose is to counteract overdosing, and no one can get to recovery if they're not alive. Right. Yeah. So I think anyone who is concerned about someone or has prescriptions for opioids and also maybe another reason to have respiratory distress should have naloxone. That's my... And you have that available through Overdose Lifeline, mm-hmm. correct? And can you tell us a little bit more about the nonprofit that you started? Uh, what do you want us to know about it? Yeah. So w- soon after Aaron passed away in 2013, I was... So my background is in injury prevention. So what I used to do is so, so much similar to the work that I do now. Um, but I was putting kids in car seats and making sure we were all wearing our seatbelts mm-hmm. and that we had smoke detector batteries and that kind of injury prevention and um, public health and grassroots advocacy. If you all remember when we passed the booster bill way back when, right. I was all part of that. And um, so I learned within like 45 to 60 days after Aaron died about naloxone and the fact that first responders had just been allowed through a law amendment in July of 2013 to administer. So police officers could now administer naloxone in July of 2013. So it just sort of felt natural for me if I didn't know that heroin and hydrocodone were the same drug, because they are, and that naloxone could have been helpful to Aaron then other people needed to know. So that's why we started Overdose Lifeline. And our, our initial thing to do was to just help first responders have naloxone. And then other advocates shared with me that it was a prescription drug that required you or I to go to our doctor and say, I, I miss using opioids. Can I have naloxone? Which is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And so we passed Aaron's Law in 2015, allowing it to be over-the-counter so that you can just walk into any pharmacy now and ask for it. And then also people can be registered distribution entities. So that's what Overdose Lifeline is. So if families or caregivers feel like they don't want to go in their pharmacy because of the shame and stigma of asking for it in the judgment, Mm -hmm. or they don't have the financial resources, then they can get in touch with Overdose Lifeline. Great. So you mentioned the stigma. You're very driven by that stigma that exists Mm -hmm. around addiction. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, initially after Aaron died, I run through, which I think we all do as human beings, and especially moms, because it's our nature to protect our children. You know, what could I have done differently? Where did I go wrong? And, you know, so stigma and the judgment from society about me as a mom, me as a person in recovery. What do you mean you're in recovery and you couldn't save your own kid? Um 
didn't you do those things that we told you to do, like have family dinners and those kind of things, right? Which we did those things and Aaron hated every minute of it. But when Aaron said he was using heroin and wanted to go to treatment, I went to work and let someone else take him. And I didn't tell any of my work family and how much time do we spend with those people? A lot of time. Had he been diagnosed with a different chronic disease, I wouldn't have gone to work. I would have gone to the Mayo Clinic or wherever I needed to go to help Aaron, and I would have told everyone. And that's the stigma piece and the shame piece that kind of go alongside. So now I know maybe there's still going to be someone that judges. There are people that are still going to judge, but it doesn't matter. We have to change the dynamic around it to get to, to get it to be treated differently like a chronic disease. So, Yeah. That the stigma is interesting. I've had conversations with other people where they, you know, if if a coworker has a child or a spouse who's diagnosed with cancer or something else, everybody rallies around and does the meal train and you know drops off casseroles or sends whatever. Um, but the stigma of addiction, regardless of what that addiction is, if it's alcohol or if it's heroin or whatever it might be, it is that you don't talk about it and it needs to be talked about. And um, so to hear you talk about that, that stigma, it kind of reminds me of that, that, that description where I've heard people say, and I thought, yeah, you know, I, I, I do know people that are going through substance use disorders and I haven't done a meal train or haven't, you know, but it's just, it's because you just, do. And, and I think it's a natural thing. So I'd, you know, how do you, how do you change that? Right. You have conversations like this, I hope to, to break that stigma. And, um, I think it's amazing that in such a short period of time, you've become that leading voice for families, individuals, and even communities affected by the disease of addiction and substance use disorder. And really, you've impacted the lives of thousands over the work that you're that you're doing with this overdose lifelines, the program, and the legislative work. What have been some of the greatest challenges, and then maybe what are some of the greatest successes? It's always a success to me if I hear from someone that their loved one has been saved because they had access to naloxone. That's the most basic thing, right? And early on, I had a mom from southern Indiana who, because of Aaron's law recently being passed, was able to have naloxone in her home and save her son. And she reached out to me. So those people even when I did you know that article way back when in April of 2014 with the late Matthew Tully Mm -hmm. people reached out to me because of that article your story is my story which is why I think things like this are so important so people don't feel alone so those are the successes when I know I've been able to give some relief to someone in some capacity and Aaron you know has saved someone's life because of that bigger successes would be that we have these partnerships with other states utilizing our programming and that we are able to really do some impact with youth. We have our youth prevention program that you talked about in the beginning. And when we do that with this amazing young man who does the presentations for us, who has his own personal story to share, and the kids come up to him afterward and ask him, would you help me tell my parents I've been smoking marijuana because I I heard what you said and I need to tell my parents and ask for help. Those are successes, right? Because we're making effect in some young person's life Mm -hmm. because that's where we need to, you know, have some impact. The the support and the partnership that we've had with other organizations in the state of Indiana is a success. 
And then I would say at the same time, it's a challenge, right? Yeah. So politically, it's a challenge sometimes. And also the stigma becomes a challenge. We have um, during COVID had first responder agencies, police agencies, not administering naloxone because of their concern that it was an aerosol and it would spread the virus. And so they stopped, which wasn't really accurate statements or concerns. And so that has a challenge, like constantly those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it's probably something that it's an ongoing educational piece that you have to do. I mean, one, we're learning about COVID-19, which we would never would have um, anticipated and and expected that. And then on top of that, trying to educate others um, about uh, ways to save lives um, during this time. When would you say you were most vulnerable that's a hard question because uh, vulnerability looks differently on different days. I would say sometimes I'm vulnerable all the time. Sure. Um, I'm probably most vulnerable around Aaron's anniversary. I'm probably most vulnerable when I'm not busy helping others and I'm by myself. Probably most vulnerable when I don't necessarily always have enough funding to distribute the naloxone that needs to be distributed as an organization, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So Justin, you were talking about COVID-19 and uh, since the pandemic has started, we've seen an increase in deaths of despair, uh, addiction, alcoholism due to the economic challenges and physical illnesses that people are facing. So I was wondering if, if you've heard anything or seen anything in Indianapolis, any spikes in uh, overdose cases? Yes. So um, because we have been in forced isolation, and isolation is a, a contributing factor to misuse of substances, right? And human connection is what we need in order to be healthy human beings, no matter if we misuse substances or not, right? So that we knew was going to be a concern. I was concerned that we took the emphasis off the opioid public health crisis and overdose in general and just put all the emphasis on COVID-19, which isn't to say we shouldn't have done that, but this other public health crisis was still existing. It hadn't been mitigated, and we weren't talking about it anymore. We didn't have dedicated funding for naloxone distribution, yet we uh, distributed 300 more naloxone kits in a two-month period than we had ever in the past. And I know from other um, grassroots partners on the ground here in Marion County, their 300% increase in overdose reversal kits. Just this past weekend, during some of the stuff that happened downtown, there were three overdose reversals amongst the the protesting. So, um, and, and just today, you know, I heard from a mom that has... Um, who, whose son she discovered is misusing and needs naloxone. So it's a concern. Overdose numbers are up. We heard from Secretary Sullivan, I believe, last week in the governor's briefing that um, the numbers between April from last year and April this year are up some 80-plus percent. Justin, as you look back and then you start to look ahead, what matters most to you in the work that you're doing? Well, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have... Um, the opioid overdose numbers, we we wouldn't have the concern that um, people are going to continue to 
experiment. Youth are going to continue to experiment. And how can we help them experiment safely? So right now, almost anything you purchase on the street probably has fentanyl, which is highly dangerous. So we may have youth who think that they're going to be experimenting with Xanax, which is a benzodiazepine, and they're going to purchase it on the street from somebody who told them to purchase it. And that Xanax that they're purchasing may say it's Xanax, but it's really fentanyl. And they're going to overdose. And they're not going to be expecting to overdose, and, and they're potentially going to die. So th that is, you know, how are we going to fix those big problems? And I wish that we could do that. Um, the more we can get people to recognize substance use disorder as a chronic disease of the brain, the better off we're going to be. The more resources we can add to it. You know, I like to say sometimes we, I think we deserve our own color on the NFL football field, just like all the other chronic diseases, but sure. we don't have one. Uh, well, we do have a recovery color, purple, but still it's not the same, you know. Hindsight, we could always do things a little better. I want to ask, um, as a mom, I kind of want to go back to the time when you were fighting like hell to save your son's life. And is there anything about that time? I know we talked a little bit about that, but again, for our listeners who may be trying to help themselves or someone they love, um, what tips do you have? What What would you like to share? Sure. So I didn't know about naloxone and I didn't understand medication for opioid use disorder or what people call MAT. And um, medication for opioid use disorder is really the gold standard for treating this disease, this disease specifically uh, opioid use disorder. I didn't understand it, uh, so I was opposed to it. So I would definitely be open to that for Aaron and helping him work with someone on that medication because that's not going to kill him the way what he was purchasing off the street would have killed him. Mm. The thing that I say to moms and parents all the time is t to be able to have that harm reduction conversation with your loved one. So having naloxone in the home and instead of fighting, which is what we do because we're afraid. Right. Right. So instead of yelling and screaming about stop doing drugs, you're going to get kicked out and all these other things that we do, being able to have that more loving, compassionate harm reduction conversation, which is I don't want you to use drugs, but I know you're using drugs right now. And so until you're ready, I want you to know that I have naloxone so that if you're going to be in the house, I'd rather, you, no, actually, I'd rather you stay here and use so that I can monitor and check on you and save you because I don't want you to die. Yeah. And when we have those kind of conversations, the whole dynamic changes, honestly, because the individual that's using the drugs is full of shame. They don't really want to use the drugs. It's a battle that they're having and they don't want to disappoint you as their mom or loved one or caregiver, but they know that they are. So if we can change that dynamic, so that would be that would be the tips that I would say to you know explore all the options for recovery. People that do the best never come back to their home environment where they were before. That's not realistic for everyone, but getting a strong recovery support system in place, so not coming home, but instead going and living in a recovery housing type environment is always going to be beneficial for people. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because as a mom, I have a 17 year old and a 14 year old now, uh, as of Wednesday, um, you know, you just don't know, you don't know what you don't know. And I'm finding more and more that I feel like I'm in this bubble and, um, I can't be. 
and for so many reasons. And, um, and whether it's for me or for a friend, I, you know, we all want to be there for somebody. It's just how, and, uh, how do you show up and how do you have those tough conversations? And, and, you know, I knew this was going to be one of those as well too, a a tough conversation, but a very much needed one. So thank you for sharing those tips um, as well. And, and, and appreciate that. Yeah. I was just thinking, I grew up in the just say no era. There was no such thing as a discussion around harm reduction. It was abstinence, sexual abstinence, abstinence from alcohol, drugs, everything. And so I think that intensified a lot of people's shame about what they were doing and they didn't want to discuss that. Sure, and it's not realistic. And I think the other thing we do as parents and loved ones is denial, right? And oh, yes. It's so hard not yep. to have denial because it's very protective, but it's harmful. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I always want to know, what is your big dream for Overdose Lifeline and how can we support it, our listeners? How can they support it too? Yeah, so... Thank you for that question. So our big dream, we have lots of big dreams. My staff will tell you we're a little small group of people doing a lot of mighty stuff, and I'm always wanting to do more, and I'm never going to say no. But we are going to, um, so no one knows this, we are going to start this camp. It's a model that comes from uh, the Luna Network, which was uh, previously the Moyer Foundation, and there's 15 sites across the country. And it's for children aged 9 to 12 who have been affected by substance use disorder or incarceration within their family. And so it's not like a camp you come to once a week or one week in the summer and then you go away, but it's an ongoing therapeutic experience. So we are going to um, have that camp in 2021. We got the, our first year funding secured. Awesome. And really excited about the camp. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yeah, that's a, that's great. And I love that you shared it here first. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that that's really important work, and and I think that's great. So thanks for yep. that, and and that thanks for that question, Amanda, too, because I I always want to feel like fixing and helping, and what can we do? So glad to know that 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 we can, and our listeners can support you as well in this incredible work that you're doing. One one question that Stevie and I always like to ask as we um, close out is about the incredible gifts that we think women have. And whether that's inspiration, strength, courage, empowerment, there's so many gifts that women have and and we like to lift those up. What gift do you believe you have and how do you like and want to share that? I I believe that I have the gift of empathy. And I believe that I have the gift of courage. Um, As I stated previously, I think it's important to stand up and say out loud, yep, I'm a mom with two master's degrees, and we did have family dinners, and this still happened to me, and and therefore it can happen to anyone. There are no um, defined people who are affected by substance use disorder, so don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to say it out loud. So I think that's my gift. I feel like I have that courage and, and strength to do that. Well, it's a beautiful gift, and, and we're grateful for that. So well, thank you. Thank you. Where can we find information about your organization and, and the work you're doing? So our website is overdoselifeline.org, and you can also send an email to contact at overdoselifeline.org, especially if you're in need of naloxone. We are happy to help. We do Recently, we did receive some funding from the state of Indiana to help with distribution of naloxone across the state. We got money for 25,000 overdose reversal kits. So we have some naloxone. If anybody needs it, we, we want to hear from you. Can I ask, this has been running through my head, and it might just be my 
ignorance, but is there training? I mean, Aaron's law requires that we train you on how to administer, how to recognize an overdose okay. and mm-hmm. how to administer. This nasal administration is very simple. It's like a nasal spray. So okay. it's not that cumbersome to understand how to administer naloxone in this form. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I just, I meant to, I mean, it's been on my mind and I'm like, how do I ask that question? So thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time to, to join us today and, and share your story. We applaud your bravery and your honesty and your dedication and commitment to, to save more lives. And I know that's important work. And again, congratulations to you on your sobriety. Thank that's you. awesome. Um, and, um, well, uh, worth celebrating. So thank you for, uh, Uh, that and for the important work that you're doing through Overdose Lifeline. And Amanda, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was fun. So uh, co-hosting with Amanda Kingsbury. We're big fans of Indie Maven and the work that you guys are doing uh, to build a community that connects women. So um, I appreciate you uh, joining us today and to be able to have our first um, co-host experience. And, And Justin, thanks for doing that. And a big thank you to the badasses out there listening. We'd love to hear what you think. Write a review or shoot us a message at badasserylife at gmail.com. If you want more stories like this one, you can find them on the blog at badasserylife.com. You can follow us on Facebook at badasserylife and on Instagram at badassery underscore life. A shout out to Kevin McLeod for the music and our producer, Jenny Duran. Until next time, keep being your badass self. And thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 